Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, your source for breaking news, business trends, and economic forecasts here and abroad that impact one-third of America's economy. And now your hosts, Lou Weiss and Tim Grady. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. My name is Tim Grady. I'm here with my co-host, Lou Weiss. And, Lou, we're going to be talking with Nicole Walter, who we have spoken with in the past um, at industry conferences. And um, we are going to be talking to her about the USMCA. So I'm kind of excited about that one. She's totally in a whole new class now. She's uh, <laughs> she has made celebrity status. What, <laughs> Nicole, welcome, welcome aboard. Thanks so much for having me. Well, Nicole, you are president of HM Manufacturing in Wakanda, Illinois. Um, I guess you would classify yourself as a small to mid-sized manufacturer in the Midwest. That would be correct. Yes. So tell us a little about HM Manufacturing and how you got involved in the very early stages of this agreement. Um, so HM Manufacturing, we are a small family-owned business with approximately 25 employees. We produce power transmission components, so everything is made to order. And the majority of my clients are food, beverage, packaging, some ag, and aerospace. So I guess how I got involved with the USMCA is I'm part of the Job Creators Network, and Alfredo Ortiz from JCN asked if I would like to be a part of this executive roundtable that would be held at the vice president's offices in D.C., and kind of go over the hardships that everyone was somewhat facing um, with NAFTA and how the USMCA would be a great thing for manufacturers, uh, farmers, ag, um, the new auto rules, finance, intellectual property. And what was great about it is there was 15 executive CEOs from small, mid, large to Fortune 100 companies that we're all there and kind of airing out our grievances and what we were facing, what we would like to see happen, and how we could help pass this deal uh, to make it better for the American workers. So that was an instrumental part that happened in, um, I would say, like June, July of last year. And since then, we've really been bugging a lot of the constituents, a lot of the congressmen, senators, and just trying to make sure that it was on Nancy Pelosi's docket so that we could get it passed. Um, ironically, I was actually in Washington, D.C. for the vice president's Christmas party, and I was there and was able to go to Congress and actually watch it get passed. So they voted on it that day, and uh, it, was a, it, was a, it was a big day for all of us, and it was pretty exciting. Wow. Yeah, that's impressive. <laughs> all, they had to do, all they had to do all the time was just get you to D.C., Right? I know. <laughs> so, Nicole, um, how does this help manufacturing in the USA as compared with NAFTA? Well, I think in regards, especially to auto, the new auto rules have changed. So it's supposed to increase U.S. jobs in the automotive sector by incentivizing production in the U.S. and North America. 
And then, of course, by encouraging companies to use more U.S. Uh, components and content and high-wage labor, uh, USMCA will help ensure that U.S. producers and workers are able to compete on a level playing field. And I think that that is significantly different than it was for NAFTA. Is it also helping out, uh, or I should ask, how is it helping out agriculture and forestry? So on the ag side, it's increasing market access for U.S. farmers with new export opportunities, um, especially for the U.S. daily poultry and egg producers. Um, it addresses longstanding non-tariff barriers to the ability of U.S. producers to export wheat and wine to Canada. And then, of course, it prevents the trade barriers disguised as food safety, animal, um, I believe, plant health measures by requiring measures to be based on sound science. So that's definitely new, too. And then, of course, it improves the transparency and functioning of approval processes for biotech crops. I'm curious, something you opened with, which I, I didn't register in my head until you said it, and you said you were a custom manufacturer of transmission parts and components, and some of your customers were in the food industry. And that kind right. of baffled me. I guess I haven't thought of transmissions and food in the same sentence. Educate me a little, right. Nicole. <laughs> well, I mean, when people think of transmissions, they always think of the transmissions in your cars and trucks and such. Um, but we produce all the internal components, so uh, gearboxes, things that are going to go in and move your production lines or conveyor systems, um, and that's mainly where you see our shafts, our gears, uh, timing belt pulleys, and anything that's belt-driven. Oh, okay. I guess I didn't yeah. put that two and two together. Um, I, I'm you know, thinking of it, of course, there are transmissions and all kinds of uh, motors that move things along in all those industries that you serve. So right. is there a benefit to you, Nicole, under USMCA for importing or exporting specifically for HM manufacturing? So not on my level because I'm not an OEM, but it definitely affects my customers that are shipping across the borders and, and trying to make this a more level playing field. Um, you know, what's great about it is that it helps reduce the red tape at the border, it reduces costs, it increases predictability for cross-border transactions. Um, and, and then, of course, on like a larger scale, being able to have people now be subjected to the high wage labor that we have to um, is, is crucial. I know on an automotive level, it's, it's going to be a little bit different, but, it, you know, if I'm paying health care and I'm giving everybody here a wage of living um, and just trying to compete with someone in Mexico that's going to make it for a third of the price, um, it just makes it so difficult to compete. So to me, on that front, um, it definitely helps. And so we're excited to see uh, a lot more quoting come through for more gearing, um, a lot more shafts. I'm even starting to kind of dabble into the automotive sector. So it's really exciting to see the opportunities now start to flood through. Uh, Nicole, when when is uh, uh, USMCA uh, going to actually take effect? They're claiming 
something that's supposed to happen soon. I don't really know. You know, they, they keep toggling back and forth. And I think with all the impeachment hearings and the acquittals, it's now kind of gone on the back burner again. Um, but I'm hoping that it's supposed to uh, be within the next six months is what they're trying to say, if not right. um, within the year. Well, I, I have a, a kind of a backup question to that. Um, the the number that's being uh, bantied about bound is that there's going to be 500,000 new jobs created as a result of USMCA. Is that right. the, the official line on that? Well, we don't have enough people now to fill the jobs that we have right now. I think we, right. we have a... I think we have 700,000 vacant jobs. Uh, where are these people going to get jobs? I mean, this is a, a serious problem that's, you know, skill gap and skill training and uh, so on. And you brought that up before. And TM, uh, TMA is also very much involved in, uh, in that issue about training. So where are we going to get 1.2 million new jobs for these people people to go to work at you know that's a very good question I, I don't know and i think that's that's the biggest problem is you know you can create the jobs but who's going to fill them and we need to have that pipeline and i've been very instrumental like you said earlier of, of going to high schools and the colleges and, and trying to have job shadows and internships and apprenticeship programs um anything to kind of push for action uh to make this this happen, but it, we're going to have to have a whole new uh, revolution for the manufacturing industry in itself to try to get people to come into our industry and start filling these jobs. But I also think that people think of manufacturing as just having machining ability, and that's not true. I mean, of course, that's a, that's a big problem, but we need people in sales, we need people in purchasing, we need people in quoting, and all of those jobs. Um, could really go unfilled, and, and there's plenty of viable people that could do that. So it's, it's hard. It's, it's, it's very frustrating, I feel like, for a lot of people. But Tim and I have been doing uh, manufacturing talk radio now about six years, and, you know, we've gotten very uh, – I've been in manufacturing my whole life, uh, and it got, uh, we've become very passionate in hearing all the problems and we know about the skill gaps and we know about the retirees are falling to the wayside by the tune of something like 10,000 people a day. Uh, and and uh, the high school students and getting them involved in uh, skills and so on. But that's a long, long process. And I, I, I don't, I mean, I think that the states are actually more involved in uh, this aspect of the problem more than the federal government. Uh, is, do you have anything to counter that or to uh, explain that that may not be the case? No, because everything that I've seen, I've seen on a scale of certain um, districts are, are taking this and understanding that this is serious ordeal and not everyone needs to go to college so i'm seeing more high schools and even some middle schools bring back shop class um bring right. back home economics which is great because it has to start somewhere 
And, sure. you know, with having manufacturing day, I think that that's huge and that's grown leaps and bounds as well. Uh, and more people want to, to tour the plant and, and see what it's all about. And um, even the manufacturing programs at the high school level are becoming more robust. You're starting to see more CNC equipment there, welding opportunities, 3D printing, all that additive manufacturing. I think it's starting to make it cool again. So I'm starting to see more traction and more kids, the young adults, start taking that class more seriously and almost wanting to do this like a career path. And so us as business owners have to take that into account and, and harbor that and nurture that and try to curate something with those kids that have that interest. They could see a career path and see this as a viable option for a job. There was an interesting uh, organization that I ran across uh, recently called um, Virtual Entrepreneurship International, and they have a program that they give for money to uh, high schools to train um, seniors in their last year how to build a business, how to grow a business, how to become an entrepreneur. And they're right now in 500 schools throughout the United States, uh, including one very recently in Washington, D.C., ironically enough. And they're really quite <laughs> successful at it, but it's um, it's still a very slow process. And uh, uh, I think in the end result, it'll all come to pass, but not without pain. Right, as, as most things, and of course, there's a learning curve on top of that. Not everything is going to fluctuate quickly. Um, sure. It's just a, it's an ebb and flow. But as long as we give these kids an opportunity and we're thinking of something on a progressive scale to show this, these virtual ideas and entrepreneurship classes, and I know there's that incubator EDU, which is a class that kids are taking that are very interested in business, and it's almost like that shark tank feel for an entire mm -hmm. semester. Those types of things are, are crucial, and I'm, I'm excited to see how this all takes form. Uh, I'd like to hear a little bit more about Job Trainer Network. Uh, I, I've not run across that name. You mentioned it at the beginning of our interview. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. So the Job Creators Network was actually set up by Bernie Makis, the CEO of Home Depot. And his whole idea was to start educating employees on what, you know, job creation is and what your business employers are doing to help make yourself successful internally. So it was also trying to shed light on what taxes are, how it comes out of your paycheck, what Medicare is. So it was interesting to like pair up with Job Creators Network because they hosted a Tax Cuts Jobs Act rally, and that's how I got uh, involved with the JCN. So it was more of trying to teach your employees what all of these things are, what it can do policy-wise, how it can affect the company, how it could affect your wages, your raises, and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. So they send a mm -hmm. lot of pamphlets explaining those things. And, and you say that Home Depot is the one who created Job Trainers? Yeah, Job Creators Network, correct, yes. 
Right. That's uh, it's good to know. Maybe we'll have to call Home Depot. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, Nicole, I recently wrote a two-part series for a magazine called Manufacturing Outlook Easing, and that gets published by a Jacket Media Company and Lou Weiss's company, All Metals and Forge Group, is a big uh, advertiser in that particular magazine. And in that article, I said that it was likely that manufacturers were going to have to take on the burden of training. That while we look to trade schools and county colleges and maybe universities, county programs, state programs, maybe federal programs, at the end of the day, for the specificity a manufacturer wants, they're probably going to have to do it themselves. Would, would you agree that that's the way it's going to probably come out? Yeah. And and I say that wholeheartedly because that's what I'm doing here. And I've taken I was on, that ask, burden, yeah. on that risk. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not easy, right? But at the same token, what else choice do I have? Like, I, I need someone skilled, but you're not really going to find it. And even when you do have someone skilled, you still have to be trained to get them to speed with what you're doing and how your forms are and what you're doing in your manufacturing facility, because everyone's different, right? So the way that we do our processes is going to be completely different than someone else. But of course, like some people are coming here, they say that they're programmers and they're not, they're just uh, set up operators to do a great job. And so I want to take that and give them the chance of getting the higher wage earnings and teach them programming. And so a lot of the time, I send them either to CAD CAM classes or the Technology Manufacturing Association where they can learn level one, two, and three programming. And then if they want to do some late night schooling here, some training, I have my production manager stay afterwards and kind of give them a little bit of a crash course so that they could understand what they're learning and be at their training facility and implement that. And it's just something that I feel is necessary. Does it hurt if they go someplace else and they take that skill set? Yes, but what choice do I have? I would rather invest in them here and be able to do all the new products and use all the technology that I've put into this company and give a better service and product to my customers than not be able to do it and have to turn away some business. So I feel like it's relative and, and it hurts, right? I mean, your productivity goes down but at, at this stage of the game, you kind of have to play that game. Nicole, I've uh, been beating a drum now for about two years on a, a particular uh, pool of people who are sort of left behind and, and forgotten about and in many cases not really cared about. And that pool is uh, vets that come home from the wars who can't get a job, uh, the non-violent, non-druggy prisoners who are coming out of prison who could be trained to do work. And then we have 600,000 homeless people. Uh, and if you take out some of the those who have mental uh, issues and so on, there's probably still another 200,000 that could be trained and so on. This is a huge pool. We're talking about probably close to a million people that could be 
retrained and brought back into society as a valuable uh, addition to manufacturing. Uh, have you run into any of this conversation in the past? I have, and I just wish that there was more options. Um, I was lucky enough to get a 24-year-old uh, Navy vet that left the Navy and wanted to be in manufacturing, and he was fantastic because he already worked on the Navy ship and did some uh, manual machining. So he was he came with great skill sets that I could use and build with. And of course, just uh, they're just so responsible, and their work ethic is just phenomenal. It just it vibrated throughout the entire company. It gave such a great energy, and it, it made people work harder, which I thought was fantastic. And I, I would love to have more if I had openings. I think that that would be a great choice and a, a great re- way to start. Um, but I just don't know how you tap into those resources. I know there's got to be some organizations out there that work with vets um, and try to do job placement. But I haven't had anybody come and and knock on my door. Um, I understand uh, what you're saying, and I, I, I preface my conversation with the fact that, unfortunately, I'm not sure that there's a lot of people that care. And um, right. I, I was in uh, D.C. Oh, about a month or so ago, which is my hometown, and uh, I was at, um, oh, about three blocks from the White House, and there was a, a light pole at, the, at a, the cross street of M and 22nd. And uh, there was a homeless person there who built a hut right on the corner of downtown Washington. And he had his American flag out and his some uh, military uh, paraphernalia uh, showing that he was in the service. And uh, it was heart sickening to see this in our capital mm. and uh, I, you're right I don't think that there's enough uh, interest um, there are isolated cases but I don't think that the media and I, I do I do throw a bit of fault at the media for not playing this up and um, it's uh, it's painful to watch it is and it's sad and I would agree with the media aspect as well I feel like we've become so divisive that instead of kind of looking at the root of what we could do to give back to our military and our service, um, everyone's talking about all the wrong things. Um, And I wish they would play it up more because that's something that is, like you said, it's very heartbreaking. They've done a big service to our country and they gave back to us. The least we could do is is help them out as well. So I don't know. Maybe we have to start something, Lou. I don't know. Well, you're doing it. Tim and I are doing it, but we're just little pockets of information that we're trying to reach out to uh, the masses. And uh, uh, hopefully that will ultimately mean something for people. Oh, I'm sure. Yes. Well, it's interesting because that was part of my conversation in the article I wrote. You know, the military takes in all of these individuals. They take them through incredible training. They get them skilled up to do the job the military needs done. Then they fulfill their obligation, and they're going to muster out what they call terminal leave. And during terminal leave, 
they're not really, they're just watching the clock wind down. They're really not taught anything. They're not kind of shipped to a reverse boot camp where they can learn manufacturing skills, for example, uh, work on CNC machines, work on 3D printers. Um, yeah, I think it would be interesting if the military took a look at their vets mustering out and saying, okay, how can we help reintegrate them into society rather than just dump them? You know, you're done, you're free, you can go. So um, I, I wrote it in the article, and I hope I can find or someone can find a way to move that kind of a concept forward. I don't, I don't know what it costs, but it probably is well worth the investment. Well, just add it to the debit, the uh, debt. well nicole we really appreciate you joining us on manufacturing talk radio Uh, we have been aware of hm manufacturing and something i'd like to point out to our listeners as nicole said at the beginning of the show she's a family-owned business 25 employees or less just kind of right around that number you don't have to be Boeing or Lockheed to be on Manufacturing Talk Radio and share your concerns with the manufacturing industry. So I'd like to invite anyone who's listening to this show who's got a business and a story to tell to join us on Manufacturing Talk Radio, and let's hear from you. But, Nicole, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you and, for having me on. It's been wonderful. And, and congratulations for doing your duty at White House. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Okay, you take care now. You as well. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. And we've been talking with Nicole Walter, who's president of HM Manufacturing in Wakanda, Illinois, a small manufacturer that was involved in a big way in the formulation and passage of the USMCA agreement. So we wish Nicole all the best with HM Manufacturing, and we look forward to the implementation of USMCA, which we'll now keep an eye on to see when it really actually gets put in place, Lou. Uh, we'll have to wait and see. The The NAFTA agreement at one time was also viewed as the, uh, the answer all to issues between uh, trade between Canada, U.S., and Mexico. So we'll just have to play the wait and see game. So we'll see when it's uh, going to be passed, uh, sorry, when it's going to be implemented. And we'll keep you posted on mfgtalkradio.com, which is where we keep all of our radio shows, articles that get posted there during the week, uh, press releases, white papers, and links to the other shows of the Jacket Media Company. And we thank all of our listeners for listening to this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at mfgtalkradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.